It's not that a single bat is migrating long distances, but the population is gradually expanding, which creates more mixing. So that's effectively mixing these rabies endemic populations with rabies free populations. And that really puts all the pieces into place so that rabies can now invade into a large new area. Hello and welcome to Contagious Thinking, the podcast from the CVR, brought to you by our very own staff and students. I'm Josie Bellhouse, a medical student doing an intercalated degree in microbiology here at the University of Glasgow and your host for this episode. As part of my undergraduate honours project, I'm working with the CVR to produce accurate, engaging and fun science communication tools such as the podcast you're listening to. While most global efforts aimed at rabies control focus on spread by dogs and other carnivores, researchers working in both the Centre for Virus Research and the Institute of Biodiversity, Animal Health and Comparative Medicine at the University of Glasgow are looking at how the rabies virus is transmitted from blood-feeding vampire bats in Latin America, which are the major source of rabies in that region. Their work should pave the way for more effective strategies to prevent rabies transmission, which will aid global efforts to eradicate the disease as a public health concern. Rabies is a very dangerous viral disease which is nearly always fatal in humans and other mammals. Aside from a handful of cases contracted overseas, the UK, along with many countries across Western Europe, has been rabies-free since the 1920s through the use of widespread vaccination. Yet across Asia and South America, rabies continues to be a huge problem for public health and is responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of people every year. The main host of rabies virus in Latin America is the common vampire bat, and for the last few decades routine culling programs have been implemented by local authorities in an attempt to curb the spread of the disease. Despite this, rabies remains a significant burden on the local health systems and the economy, as the bats can pass the lethal rabies infection to farm animals such as cattle. One of the reasons that we are struggling to combat the virus is that we have a limited understanding of its basic biology and its transmission in local bats. The 28th of September marked the 10th World Rabies Day, and this year's theme was Rabies, Educate, Vaccinate, Eliminate. To mark this, we spoke to the University of Glasgow's Dr Daniel Stryker, a research fellow, and Dr Julio Benavides, a postdoc in Daniel's lab, and recent recipient of the George Bear Latin America Investigator Award from the international group Rabies in the Americas. The research of Daniel, Julio and their other colleagues into predicting the spread of rabies aims to contribute to developing strategies to control this deadly virus across Latin America. I'm Daniel Stryker. I'm a Sir Henry Dale Fellow based at the Center for Virus Research and the Institute of Biodiversity, Animal Health and Comparative Medicine at the University of Glasgow. I was trained uh, in my PhD as an ecologist and that really stemmed from an interest in, in really infectious disease ecology and some earlier work that I did as an undergraduate which was focusing on patterns of parasite transmission between species. Um, and that was actually studying gut parasites as my kind of first introduction into the infectious disease world. And then I later transitioned into working on rabies and bats. I'm Julio Benavides. I'm a postdoc research associate at the same institute. So I um, did my undergrad and PhD in France, and I was trained as an evolutionary biologist and ecologist. Um, early in the days, I was a behavioral ecologist on gorillas and primates, um, and I actually stepped from Chile to France to work in Africa. And then I trained as an evolutionary biologist and moved on into disease at my, during my PhD. So I went into the ecology of diseases uh, during my PhD because I work on antibiotic resistance in gorillas. Okay, so then how long have you been at Glasgow? Uh, I've been at Glasgow three years now. I've been here almost two already. Okay, so how did people start into rabies? How did the rabies project start? Um, I got into rabies because I was selected to be a part of a really cool program which was funded 
between the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and the Association of Public Health Laboratories, uh, which provided a public health training um, fellowship. So this was a really nice opportunity for me, uh, right out of undergraduate, to go work at the CDC for about two years. And the way that program worked was you state your interests and you get matched up to a laboratory with similar interests. And my interest being um, pathogens that infected multiple host species was really well aligned with rabies. So that kind of put me into the rabies group. And from there, I had really supportive supervisors that allowed me to kind of forge my own way and decide what aspect of rabies I wanted to work on. And so that ended up going towards bat rabies, uh, mostly for the reason that I, I saw that there was so much variation among bat species and their ecology and behavior and population dynamics, and I was curious about how those ecological differences would tie into different patterns of rabies transmission. So that was my start in rabies, and then for my PhD, I, I um, wanted to do something with a little bit more direct applied relevance, and so that's when I started doing the project on vampire bat transmitted rabies. Uh, and that was also a project which initially started between the, the Centers for Disease Control and the University of Georgia, and has then since expanded to have a variety of both academic, governmental, and NGO partners. So I started with rabies as a, we say, as an evolutionary biologist that doesn't really specify on the pathogen. So I worked during my PhD on cross-species transmission between gorillas and humans with the very interest of seeing if gorillas were getting um, antibiotic resistant from humans from a conservation perspective. And then from that work, I start um, working also in communities, African communities, where uh, they had water issues and other type of situations where they would tell, tell me that their science, my science, wasn't, wasn't enough. Um, so from that, I slightly start moving to public health, but my first postdoc after working with gorillas, I went to Yellowstone to work with uh, Paul Cross on brucellosis, and I, I've been more or less specializing on bacteria, actually. Uh, with Paul, I work a lot on cross-species transmission, again, between uh, elk and bison, elk and cattle. In that uh, particular case, it was the opposite. There was no conservation problem. The problem was for farmers. If brucella went from the wild reservoirs into the farmers, it was a problem for agriculture. And then um, I moved, actually, to work in Congo for a little bit, coming back to gorillas. And during my coming back from Europe, um, somebody mentioned Daniel, Daniel's work. And Daniel's work on rabies matched a lot what I wanted to do in terms of cross-species transmission and also the implications. Uh, that's what really attracted me to work on rabies is because I never worked in Latin America before despite being from Chile. But I saw that with Daniel, there was a big potential to actually tackle what he was doing, cross-species transmission, and then all the social aspects, the burden of rabies, how we could tackle it, how we could improve um, the control measures, and that was what moved me into rabies. So maybe both of you can tell us why it's still important to be doing research on rabies. Um, well, rabies is among the neglected tropical diseases, uh, but it's actually one of the ones that has the highest burden. Um, around 50,000 to 60,000 people still die of rabies every year. Uh, which is a shockingly high number considering this is an entirely preventable disease. Uh, annual costs are something around $6 billion per year, uh, and this is falling disproportionately to the poorest, the poorest segments of the poorest countries. So this is uh, a serious disease for a lot of developing countries, and one for which 
In some cases, we have good solutions for how to contain rabies, often through vaccination of animals. In other cases, such as bat rabies, um, it's a serious public health problem. It's also a serious agricultural problem because of the high burden of disease that results when bats feed on livestock, they transmit rabies to them. Uh, but this is a case where we don't have the same sort of tool set available that we do have for uh, control of rabies in a classic host like a dog or other carnivores. So this is where our research is going now of saying, can we can we do something to improve the situation of rabies and transmitted by bats, particularly in Latin America, where it's such a serious problem. So part of that is prevention. Can we advise governments or farmers of what are the high risk, highest risk areas for rabies outbreaks? And part of it is kind of taking a step from uh, the more fundamental science towards the applied science of saying, can we start to understand enough about bat behavior and rabies ecology to implement new strategies? And particularly, can we move towards something like vaccination of bats, since that's been such a powerful strategy for control of rabies and wild carnivores and domestic dogs? Uh, can we apply that approach in bats? But that's where the big questions come, because there, there are big gaps in our understanding that are preventing us from doing that at the moment. Um, I, to complement what Daniel said, I, when I was started working on rabies, and in particular on that paper, or proceeding paper, where they gave me the Senasa data, the data from the public uh, livestock um, public health authority, we actually realized by looking at the data that rabies was the most reported disease in Peru, and, and because it kills the animal, in as far as we know, most cases, because we're working on serology now, but because it's the most it has the highest impact for livestock for small-scale farmers in Peru, and that could be potentially the case in other countries that we don't have enough data on. We realized that that was one of the main issues for farmers. And actually, from our interview work that is being finished right now, we realized that farmers, for example, put rabies, 50% of them in the Andes, as their most important problem, among the top three problems that they have to have livestock. We know from the public authorities that people stop farming for livestock. And there is a lot of consequences from the small case farming in Latin America that could be generated by rabies. Um, things that we don't exactly know, but we know from uh, talking to the farmers and talking to public authorities, such as people stop farming in the Andes, they don't know what to do. The poverty cycle starts, mining is very strong over there, illegal and legal. Um, um, coca farmer, uh, there is a lot there, and we know from talking to farmers that some farmers have to switch from having 10 livestock that all die from rabies into other type of activity. This is a very not known uh, phenomenon that could be quite spread, and that, in my particular case, relates that rabies can actually put small-scale farming in danger in these areas, and uh, people over there know it, Latin Americans don't know it. The world doesn't know it on top of that. Um, Chile, where I come from, eradicated rabies many years ago, were free of rabies. But if you ask a Chilean about a bat or a vampire bat, as we were discussing with Daniel in the North, nobody knows. Nobody even knows that they exist. And this same feeling is among um, people in general in Latin America. And policymakers, after doing very well on rabies on dogs in Latin America or eradicating it from many countries. Now we realize that the vampire bat rabies is more of a problem, is an increasing problem as our data is showing, yet it, it 
it is not receiving probably the attention that we consider it should receive. So why is it such a problem in Latin America? Because vampire bats first of all are only in Latin America. <laughs> um, so if they were in other places, uh, probably the infrastructure of other places would, would make the same problem. But uh, Daniel could uh, talk a lot about this from his experience. In, in our case, in the, in the Amazon, uh, we know that people get beaten all the time uh, because they don't have protection. Uh, because discussing with friends in Latin America from different countries, I've been in the forest in Ecuador, uh, they don't really understand. They know they get beaten but they don't really know much about whether it's a problem or not. Farmers do. They know exactly that they have a problem. They just don't get here. <laughs> uh, and, and that's, that's kind of a, a something about the position of small-scale farming in Latin America. Uh, if you ask farmers that live in places with a lot of rabies, they know it's a massive problem for them. They know their animals die from it. They can spot bats. But people in the city or people outside those areas are not aware simply about this. Yeah, so there's the awareness problem and then there's also the, the relatively special biology of the particular bat species involved. So this is the, the common vampire bat which transmits rabies to these cattle and, uh, and to people as, as Julio was discussing. Uh, and these are bats that feed exclusively on blood. So you've got a blood feeding bat which feeds almost every night and you've got a virus that's transmitted in the saliva. So that really creates a perfect storm for rabies transmission to happen. This is really like the ideal host species for um, for rabies virus because the, the contact frequency between species is so incredibly high. So when rabies is present in the bats, you'll start to see outbreaks in people or livestock. And does rabies also hurt the bats? It does, yeah. I think that's one of the things that uh, is probably often unappreciated about bat rabies is that... Um, all we know from experimental infections and from observations in the field is that the disease does kill the bats as well. Uh, typically with a fairly short infectious period of a couple of days, so after that they're, they're dead just as any other mammal would be. Okay. Um, so one thing I've always wanted to know is that we always know that rabies is in dogs and cochlear carnivores, and then we also know it's in bats, but it, are they two different kinds of rabies or what happens? Yeah, that's one of my favorite things about rabies. Uh, I mean, it's a terrible disease, but it's super interesting from uh, an ecological standpoint. So uh, the virus, while being incredibly generalist and in that you can take a virus and it can infect any mammal, in nature is actually compartmentalized to particular host species. So dogs have their own rabies virus, skunks have their own rabies virus, bats have their own rabies virus, even different bat species have their own rabies viruses. So you can have... 20 bat species living in the same area, and each one of them maintains its own epidemiologically and evolutionarily distinct cycle of rabies. It's thought that probably the origins of, of the lysoviruses are in bats. That's because there's, there's many other species within the lysovirus genus, and most of those are associated with bats. The evolutionary history of rabies virus itself is a little bit murky because this is a virus which is globally found in dogs and other carnivores and only found in bats in the Americas. So uh, there's some speculation that perhaps there was a host shift sometime in the past from bats into carnivores, but then that would require rabies having gone extinct from bat populations throughout much of the world. The other possibility is that rabies is actually a relatively new pathogen in American bats and that it was brought over during European colonization um, and through carnivore movement. 
uh, and then there was a whole shift from carnivores into bats. Uh, this is one of the big unresolved questions in the evolutionary history of rabies. Building on years of work through the use of viral and host genetic data, serological investigations and questionnaires of local farmers, Daniel, Julio and others demonstrate that the transmission of rabies virus travels in a predictable wave-like pattern across time and space, which allows for the forecasting of where and when rabies will appear. Vampire bats are found all across Peru, but not all the bats harbour rabies virus. The Pacific coast remains rabies-free for now. However, rabies virus isn't staying still in the bat populations, it's moving or emerging into never-before-seen territories. The Peruvian Andes have classically been viewed as a barrier to this movement, as their altitude reaches beyond a vampire bat's physiological tolerance. However, valleys form natural routes across the Andes, and the striker group predicts that rabies could reach the Pacific coast of Peru by June 2020, when here, aside from the serious implications it would have on human health and livestock, it could even potentially be transmitted to other wildlife, including local sea lions. The Peruvian collaboration actually began at the start of my PhD. I was I knew I wanted to work on vampire bat transmitted rabies, um, but I didn't know exactly where I should work. So luckily at the time I was still closely associated with the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. And so the head of the rabies lab there put me in touch with a couple of people in Latin America and said, here's this kid, he wants to do research, um, help him out if you can. So that first year I went to uh, Peru and Mexico. And Peru, I found a really interesting place to work because it was that same year in 2007 that there was a significant human rabies outbreak where about 30 people died across a couple of villages in the Amazon. So that really catalyzed a lot of interest on the government side to support research into this disease. So that meant that I went to Peru and had incredible support from governmental ministries who took me around, taught me how to catch vampire bats, taught me how to take samples, uh, and then the project has really grown from there. So uh, through my PhD research, I was there for about five years, uh, off and on doing field sampling and monitoring of bat populations, doing genetic work on the bats themselves and on the viruses. Um, and now we're, we're getting into a lot of new areas, uh, such as what these papers are focusing on, the, the, these concepts of viruses invading across space, which is something that really hadn't been recognized in Peru. It has been a disease that people have tried to deal with and have thought of it as an endemic disease that's always there. So all these data that we're coming out with are, are showing that it really isn't such a consistent threat. Uh, it's something that is dynamic across the landscape and we need to understand those dynamics in order to better control the disease. So it is an emerging disease? I would say so, hmm. yeah. Particularly, it, it has not had the reputation of being an emerging disease. Um, and that's probably because we've known about it since the early 1900s, uh, when, when bat rabies was first discovered during outbreaks. Um, but all the evidence suggests that this is a virus that is certainly emerging spatially and mo more than likely emerging in terms of the burden of the disease increasing in recent years. In my perspective, how I got to Peru um, to work is very trivial for me. I'm Latin American, and uh, I consider myself Latin American before being Chilean, which is something very important here, because, um, and I think this is why they give me a Latin American award for the rabies uh, for Rita. It's because, for me, this is very exciting. Only few people, and I work in Africa for already 10 years, there's very few people that can, um, I think, enjoy work as much as I do because culturally, um, well, I spoke French in Central Africa and now in, in Latin America, I can bring what Daniel already works on 
also uh, to complement that with uh, with the with um, trying to manage in some times very challenging political um, perceptions and, poli and stakeholders, policymakers, etc. Um, and in my case, working in Peru, which uh, for a Chilean um, comes with a lot of prejudice from other people because Chile and Peru uh, have had the difference in the past, uh, particularly in football. And I have very, very, very good friends in Peru and the people from Peru, the stakeholders, the people in the university, the regional governments, they have treated me as, I think nobody has treated me as well. Um, maybe some um, people in Africa, but they have been very, very, very uh, keen to work with us for the simple reason that we come with a lot of honesty. We tell them that we're here to help them and improve what they do. And we will talk about maybe that later. And when they recognize this, when Latin America is know that you are there not only for your personal interests that exist already, when they know that you are there to work on for the improvement on themselves and them, they don't restrict themselves to Latin America because Latin America works a lot with Africa, um, then you have all the possibilities to do amazing things in the field. And uh, like, so you've got the, the geography there, and then you've got the people, then you've got the bats as well. So right. um, are there lots of bats <laughs> there? Is it yeah. Um, so there's an incredible diversity of bats in Peru, particularly in the Amazon rainforest. You can go to single areas that have 80 or 90 species of bats. Um, and the areas where we've been doing a lot of work now, which is in the Andes, the bat diversity is lower, uh, but the most important bat for transmitting rabies, the vampire bat, is quite abundant. Uh, and that follows directly from the, the presence of natural caves, uh, also the presence of mining in these areas, which creates roost sites for the bats to live in, and you have such a high density of livestock. So um, there is, is a fair amount of evidence now that the as you increase the amount of livestock that are available, you can also increase the density of bats that are there, which of course has potential to increase the transmission of diseases like rabies. Yeah. Uh, to add to that, if you want to understand the magnitude of bats in farmers, our surveys of 400 par farmers found that around 70% of farms get beaten regularly by vampire bats. It goes from every day to... Um, a couple of times a year. Um, that same study was carried out by um, the regional government of a whole region, Apurimac, which have a heavily problem with uh, rabies in those in the areas where we work with Daniel, Apurimac, Ayacucho, and Cusco, three regions. They hold more or less 60% of cases of vampire bat rabies in livestock. Um, those those government that are regional government that put a lot of money in particular Apurimac, uh, the project was around half a million dollars to put text in the field to understand how much the far, uh, farms get beaten and then use calling to reduce that. They also started with around 70% of farms and more than 30% um, of the animals uh, across farms getting beaten almost every day. That involves cattle, it involves pigs. Our survey said that it also involves goats, sheep. We have farmers that tell us that even rabbit and chicken get bitten by the Andes, although it's normally 90% of the cases reported at least are cattle. And we still don't understand very well whether that just because other animals die and we don't see them yeah. and farmers don't just don't report it or there is actually a preference for 
cut off from the bat. So it isn't the actual bat bat bite itself that's a problem. It's the it's the rabies that the it is both. Yeah. Uh, the the farmers do not like their animals getting bitten by bats every night. Um, there is some evidence that the the blood loss associated with the bat bites can reduce milk production. Uh, it can also lead to secondary infections if you have an open wound that provides an entry for all sorts of viral and bacterial pathogens. Um, so it, it's certainly more than the problem of rabies itself that the farmers are worried about. And this is, I think, a, a very strong debate that we have with the regional authorities. Um, because we can, from our first part of work, we can help them with rabies. And uh, we were discussing about vaccination on bats. Um, and that will eliminate a massive problem to them, which is, like I said, the top problem for many farmers in those areas. Yet, there is the they tell us that that will not solve entirely the problem because animals will still be bitten. And that's why they use calling. They say, we, we know that we're using not necessarily the best strategy. We know that we are harming other bats during calling that are good for our ecosystem. But um, we cannot settle on just eliminating rabies. And I think we yet need to find ways, I think personally, um, I feel that that's something where we also have to work very hard. If we really want the well-being of farmers, that I, we are working on Staphylococcus aureus, for example, on, on bats, that could be an issue transmitted from uh, bats to livestock. We are working on antibiotic-resistant E. coli from, from bats to livestock and livestock to bats. Uh, we are yet to understand how much more than rabies there is, uh, especially with Daniel and myself work on metagenomics what other viruses can be transmitted. Um, and yet we need to understand how much more we can do to for the well-being of those animals that are only related to being bitten. So if we get back to the... Or we start on these two papers, the... So were there any papers before that that were really relevant, or these two ones that are very similar? Um, in terms of the, the concepts of spatial invasion, these were the first... Uh, that we've directly addressed that problem. However, these are both set in the context of probably two other papers which have focused on how rabies persists within bat colonies. So both of these papers use long-term serological data to try to understand what are the factors that influence the prevalence of rabies exposure in bats. Uh, and so that study was focusing on the effects of culling uh, and showed that, in fact, colonies that were bat colonies that were culled actually had higher seroprevalence against rabies, suggesting that uh, that might not be the most effective strategy for rabies control. We didn't really understand why we were seeing that effect, because it was purely an observational study. So the following study, which was published by um, Julie Blackwood, myself, Sonia Altizer, and Pedro Johani uh, at the University of Georgia, that paper took a mathematical modeling approach and showed first that uh, one of the core requirements for rabies to persist over long time periods was the movement of the virus between bat colonies. So that really opened our eyes to the fact that this isn't necessarily like a disease that can just sit endemically within a single bat colony. It really needs to move between different bat colonies to, to be able to persist over long time periods. And the sec Is that because it's, it's bad for the bats? Yeah, that's because it's killing some bats and it's naturally immunizing many others. So rabies has kind of a peculiar epidemiology or, or biology in bats in that 
when a bat gets exposed to rabies, one of two things can happen. It can either become infectious and die of the disease, or it will never become infectious, uh, and that's something that's often termed an abortive infection. So the bat doesn't become infectious and just starts producing antibodies and potentially becomes immune for, for some amount of time, which we don't fully understand, uh, but likely not lifelong immunity. So one of those two things can happen. And when a rabies outbreak hits, that means that some will become infectious and allow the virus to continue transmitting and others will become immunized. And so that means that when you have uh, a lethal virus in a relatively small bat populations, in order for it to persist, it cannot sit there and wait for new births to happen. Um, it really has to move instead. So that analysis showed us the importance of bat movement for the long-term viral persistence and also showed that uh, culling might be a, uh, a counterproductive strategy for rabies control precisely because of that movement also. So if culling incentivizes bats to move, like say you kill off 20%, 30%, 40% of a bat colony, these are social animals and they're used to having their groups and they will sense that something is wrong. So there's a possibility that those bats disperse. And so by encouraging more mixing between bat colonies, you could actually facilitate rabies transmission. So those two papers really laid the groundwork for thinking about, all right, we there, there are some big things that we don't understand about how rabies is maintained within the bat populations. And we actually need to understand that before we can start to uh, either develop preventative strategies for human and animal rabies or implement more effective control strategies within the bats themselves. Um, so the, the, the papers that Julian and I have published in the last year have really started to address some of those questions of can we start to take information, particularly from, from the data that we get from livestock and then, and then the genetic data that we get from both the viruses and the bats to understand how this virus works at the landscape level? And does that tell us something about how we can prevent rabies? Yeah, uh, I wanted to add that when we, re when we discussed with Daniel, when we received this data from Senasa, we didn't know whether we were looking at spatial expansions or more endemicity, for example, within areas that already had rabies. We start looking at the data and it appeared very clearly that um, more districts per year, very constantly, were being, de were being detecting rabies. And as I'm working on that, on that um, data, at very generally, we were detecting around 12 new districts every year from because we had the data from 2003 to 2013, 14. And by seeing those districts increasing, there was two alternatives. One, that it was just more awareness, which happens for any disease. You see Zika virus, for example, you go and look for it. Now that there is more attention to it, you also find it easily. Um, so in this case, we have to be sure, or at least as sure as we could, that this was not just a wave of awareness, for example. That's why we did surveys in, ahead of the wave. And that's what Daniel also did serological um, um, work on caves that are after the wave, that rabies have not arrived yet, because we needed to be sure that it, it wasn't just the farmers not reporting on those areas. And the farmers tell, told us, and we have more evidence now with more surveys that know that those farmers have not, um, they don't perceive rabies because there are not symptoms on the animals that show rabies, contrary to the ones that are either in endemic areas or where the wave is. And then we start to understand the mechanism behind this, uh, at least on, on always, in my case, just looking at the temporal patterns. 
um, and we start realizing that this was not only increasing, but it was increasing in a very constant way. Way, and this is this linear pattern that we find. Um, in my particular case, that relates me to the work that I've been following from um, one of my PhD supervisors, Peter Walsh, that worked on Ebola and Roman Vick, that published that Ebola um, with uh, genetic data uh, plus pathogen paper was advancing in a way matter. And because I was working with gorillas and Ebola, um, that was very striking in my mind. And we said, we find the same linear pattern that, that these guys find. And also in, in the case of rabies, this have been uh, observed anecdotically in the 70s. In Argentina, the Pietro, which is a big name for rabies in Latin America, um, somebody who has trained a lot of people in Latin America, and Peruvians know him very well. He said in, um, in his papers on the 70s, there is a wave of rabies. Um, we, we try, and Daniel knows this paper, that we tried calling, and rabies kept spreading. But we saw it from the north of Argentina going down to the south. And that also made us think that this could be a similar pattern okay. um, with the evidence that Daniel had from previous work. So you have regions that rabies is endemic as well. So what's the difference yeah. between a region that's endemic rabies and a region that it's expanding? Yeah, so I will tell a little bit of that. Daniel, I'm sure can compliment. So uh, when I started to work for us, how would we call one area? endemic or not, we just start analyzing what, when they start reporting cases on a particular district, for example. Um, and there are in the region where we work, the North had always report cases in some areas since 2003 and much earlier, but the data, the official data, the surveillance system from the livestock uh, public authorities in NASA started in 2003, took a couple of year, years to get up to speed, maybe 2005, which our collaborator William Valderrama told us. And after that, we have seen um, districts, in particular in the last two years, the rabies outbreaks increased a lot in 2013 and 2014. So when we're analyzing data, that was two years ago. Um, those outbreaks were in areas where rabies have never been. Um, reported at least. And that's what we would consider an emerging district, for example, district that just got rabies in the last couple of years, compared to areas that had had rabies at least known for more than 10 years. Um, and we know some areas in the also in the north that Daniel um, detailed more in his paper, where we also have seen expansion actually in the north of Peru, according to what uh, we calculated, uh, there was more districts, a little bit more per year than were showing new, um, reporting rapes for the first time. Um, that we don't know the exact limit of that in the Andes, these valleys that allow us to see a very linear pattern of movement. When we went back to authorities, they say, we know these waves, we know they're happening, we can prove them. And the prediction actually of um, my paper on proceedings was that they were keep spreading two valleys in particular. We put, um, our effort in two of them, that in 2015 and 16, rabies will arrive in two areas. Um, as predictions are, we know that we can be wrong and we don't like to predict much. Uh, in one of them, to, in 2015, the one between the border of Cusco and Apurimac, rabies actually arrived la last year, at the end of last year and this year, and most efforts have been put on that area from the authorities, and we went back to them, I saw them, um, um, in May, I think, this year, and they told us, 
rabies hit where you were exactly predicting within that window. In the other valley, they said window rabies did not went down as we also expected. And we don't know what's going on there. That opens more perspective to our work. We said there might be some special heterogeneity, something that is not allowing rabies to go down. Maybe in that particular area, two valleys split into two. Maybe bats are not connected enough. Maybe there is a gap of livestock. That is opening questions. Um, Daniel could <laughs> comment on a lot of this. Yeah, I guess what I would add is that there, there's, there's a really interesting phenomenon going on here where you, you it's not that you have areas that aren't suitable for bats uh which have no um instead you have areas that have plenty of bats and those bats are feeding on livestock but for whatever reason they do not have rabies yet in those bat populations and so what we're seeing is the virus moving not necessarily the bat populations moving um However, that opens up a big question of, for these areas that for many years have not had rabies, uh, why is all of a sudden rabies able to jump across whatever barrier existed and invade the new bat population? So what my recent study did was actually look at the genetic structure of the bats themselves. And we showed that one of the things that was happening, particularly with um, an invasion of rabies that's currently crossing across the Andes and heading towards the Pacific coast, we saw that there's actually more gene flow happening now than historically from bats that are living on the coast to the ones that are living in the Andes and the Amazon. So the Andes have effectively formed a barrier because we know that these bats don't go above about 3,500 meters. That's just above their physiological tolerance. And so for a long time, that has blocked rabies. But there is a depression in the northern part of the country, which is a lower elevation of about 2,500 meters. Um, and what we've shown using the bat genetics is that there's actually more and more gene flow happening. So bats are moving from the coast into the Andes. And it's not that a single bat is migrating long distances, but the population is gradually expanding, which creates more mixing. So that's effectively mixing these rabies endemic populations with rabies free populations. And that really puts all the pieces into place so that rabies can now invade into a large new area. Uh, so that's basically rabies crossing the Andes and entering into the Pacific coast of South America, where it has never, at least vampire bat rabies, has never been a problem historically. And so that opens up a whole serious issue for uh, both public health and agricultural production, because these are areas that don't have any experience with rabies. They don't necessarily recognize the disease. They don't vaccinate their cattle. Uh, the people aren't aware of the problem. So if these predictions are accurate and rabies continues to spread, uh, this opens up a whole large area that, and, and an issue that the authorities in these areas are going to have to deal with. So what's different now? Why hasn't this it, happened? That is, a, is the big question. Um, we know that basically the floodgates are now open and there's more mixing of bats. Um, but what initially triggered that is, is a mystery. Uh, we can speculate on certain things. Um, there's more and more roads being built and being paved in Peru. And so as roads are built, that allows for more farming to happen in those areas that are now connected to the rest of the world. So as you can put in more farms, that creates more food resources for the bats, which potentially enables basically connecting of uh, populations that were previously isolated. So it's almost like you've built a bridge between two islands, uh, and that bridge is the road, and the thing that allows the bat to cross is the presence of food. But that's a, that's just a, a, a fairly speculative idea at the moment. Yeah, one one other hypothesis that the Peruvians 
actually always put forward is global warming and climate change. So the, the idea behind that is that we know that uh, bats are limit, limited by winter temperatures, for example, in where they can roost. And the warmer the climate will get, the more bats could go higher up in elevation. And we try to check that in, in my paper, where um, altitude was actually in some um, regions, like San Martin, we were seeing an increase in cases with altitude. Um, but also in the highest um, regions like Apurimac or Ayacucho, where we expect that that's where climate change is going to make the biggest difference into pushing the altitude, we are. Already, it seems that bats are already very high at 3,600, sometimes reported at 4,000 meters bites. Um, and it seems like on those places, the, the elevation is not actually going up. It just hit an upper limit. Mm -hmm. So from at least the evidence that we had in our paper with the livestock data, that is a limited num uh, data, we did not detect necessarily that there was... Um, a very strong um, climate effect. We know it's going up in some valleys. We also know that it's going down in some valleys. So it's, so far we believe it's more spatial spread um, than necessarily a climate effect that is triggering uh, the advance. The, in those regions also we look at livestock density and livestock density has not really changed on those particular areas where there is more, um, more outbreaks. At least in the last couple of years, it, some districts actually decreased because rabies um, discouraged farmers from farming. Farmers stopped it. And you, we probably see in the long term less cattle because of rabies than in the past. But I think one of the things we need to do next is figure out how the distribution of livestock is changing. So as Julio says, it's possible that the overall numbers are potentially going down. Um, but whether those livestock that remain are concentrated in certain areas and where they are in the landscape, uh, those are data that we really need to start thinking about and, and collecting so that we can know. Like, maybe livestock are going down altogether, but livestock in just the right place can connect bat populations that have been previously isolated. So I think in one of the papers you were able to give an exact date, or not an exact date, but a, a time frame when rabies would reach Pacific coast. So how were you able to do that? Is it because of the linear? Yeah, so we're able to, to make predictions there because um, on the one hand, we, we have a good idea from the bat genetics, which bat populations are connected to each other and kind of the landscape features that influence bat population structure. So that gives us kind of the, the roads that are in place for rabies to travel along. Uh, in order to estimate how fast rabies will travel along those roads, we use some new methods from uh, Bayesian phylogeography, where essentially you're taking a phylogenetic tree that's annotated with both the date and the location uh, of all the sequences that are collected, and we can use that information to estimate how quickly rabies moves across the landscape. So in essentially what we're doing is creating the pathways and then projecting over those pathways at the speeds that have been estimated from the historical data, uh, which is... Uh, I think an interesting and an innovative approach in that it is forecasting in areas that currently do not have rabies. We're saying, okay, here's the time frame of when rabies might occur in those areas. Uh, and it was encouraging that when we took that approach, the genetic-based approach, it actually lined really well 
with the projections that we had purely from epidemiological data. So we looked uh, in the PNAS paper at patterns of livestock mortality in the years after all the sequence data were collected. And that showed that um, rabies was indeed expanding at rates that were similar to what we estimated from the genetic data, and the expansions were happening right along the pathways that we expected from the bat genetic data. So that gives us some confidence that um, at least in the several years after the genetic data were collected, the invasions were advancing as we predicted. We don't expect that there will be more barriers because we know the bats are present from where rabies is now all the way to the Pacific coast. Um, so we don't know of anything else that would stop it. It's essentially climbed the tallest peak. All the bat populations are there. It just has to go downhill. So it seems like all the pieces are in place, but of course we can't be 100% sure that things will uh, arrive uh, as we expect them to. Um, I can say that preliminary results that we, we received yesterday, out of 50 farmers, 35 farmers, around 60% of them around the colony are being bitten by, uh, their animals are being bitten by uh, vampire bats, which is very similar to what we found in the Andes. It's just unknown. Yeah, and it's unknown because there hasn't been a rabies problem. I mean, exactly. you will ask the authorities there and they say, oh, no, we don't have rabies. And yeah. I always kind of thought that they were wrong. I, I, I have to <laughs> admit that for years we were doing some serological studies which suggested some rabies was circulating in vampire bats on the coast. Uh, but now seeing the genetic data combined with the complete absence of cases in livestock over the last 10, 15 years uh, has left me convinced that there actually hasn't been rabies present on the coast. But um, uh, as our paper shows, that may very well change in the next couple of years. Vampire bat rabies is clearly spreading across Peru, increasing the devastation in those communities that are vulnerable. But if we can predict when and where it will appear, is there anything we can do about it? And what does the evidence show is the best way to proceed? Should we kill the bats? Vaccinate the livestock? Vaccinate the bats? Uh, so I think the best thing that can be done at the moment is heightening surveillance in areas and vaccinating livestock in high-risk locations. What likely will happen is bats will be culled um, in areas where outbreaks are currently happening. We don't have great evidence that that's going to be an effective strategy for rabies control, certainly in the area where Julio has been working. They've been doing a lot of culling and there's still a lot of rabies. And there's the possibility that if you're culling areas that are the hottest, so areas that currently have an outbreak and you're culling there, then you're encouraging potentially dispersal of bats. So that could, in theory, accelerate outbreaks. Um, moving forward, we really, really like to explore the feasibility and efficacy of vaccinating bats against rabies as a way of preventing invasions. But I think we're probably still a little ways off before we can recommend that as uh, really a, a large scale strategy for rabies for prevention and control. I, yeah, I, I think in this several ways where, um, as Daniel mentioned, we are lucky enough to partner with the regional governor of Rimac under 15 techs that have been working for the last two years on, on bat calling and uh, bite rate. Uh, from that data that we are, the, 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 the techs are still in the field, the project will finish this year, and we have been digitalizing around 800 farms per month uh, and see how the bite rate on those animals change. And this is where I um, will like to always uh, encourage the scientific community 
on collaborating with <laughs> not only policymakers but also NGOs. Um, is one of my uh, uh, motives in life as a scientist because of this kind of things. We are we are working with the regional government. They they are providing us 800 farms a month of data uh, about these bites, and we're seeing the the bite rates on farms and on animals, the percentage of animals and farms getting bitten, being reduced in some areas. Um, going up again when the when the techs don't go to the field for uh, because they don't get paid, the money runs out for a couple of months, etc. And now we, we want to see it after two years, how much it went down. Yet, as Daniel said, the official reports are not showing necessarily, and that's the data we're going to analyze, that rabies is decreasing in terms of outbreaks. Uh, they are putting a lot of money, a lot of effort, a lot of people in the field. The buy rate is reduced, but maybe in terms of percentage, as far as last year, to 70%. And farms getting beaten to a 50%, so there's still plenty of contact between bats and livestock. Uh, that's, I think, from the control strategies, that's also given us an idea that calling will not necessarily work. And I think the local authorities, they know that, but they're just out of options so far. And this is what Daniel, I think, and myself try to um, see whether other strategies like vaccination of bats could work. Um, another, for me, another area that is really important, and Daniel mentioned that too, is um, educational campaigns and awareness. Um, for me, this can be as powerful as um, strategies that we need to have anyway, uh, like controlling that vaccination, for example. Uh, while, while we don't have those strategies, there are very simple ways, I think, to um, discuss with authorities how evidence, uh, scientifically-based evidence can help the wave that we're seeing um, relates a lot to my personal experience. In Chile, we get earthquakes all the time. You know, we have waves coming. Why? And I will cite the New York Times of this. The New York Times published in 2015 something that was called Why Chile's Latest Big Earthquake Has a Small Death Toll. Why people don't die in, in Chilean earthquake? Where the last earthquake was 8.3, the one before was 8.9, and still people don't die. Why? Well, we all know the answer to this question. We are aware of them. People have been telling us that we're going to have big earthquakes since the, since the 80s. And Chileans got prepared for that. Prepared in how they construct their houses, which in that case of livestock could be vaccination, but also what to do when an, a wave is coming. My dad lives in the coast. Every time there is a big earthquake, he runs to the hills. There is, And the last earthquake, New York Times said also, move a million people from the coast. And Chile the, is very limited between the coast and the Andes. In some areas, it's a couple of kilometers. Why I bring this up? Because if we know that a wave is coming, this is a very simple thing to do. Go and tell the farmers that rabies is coming, that they need to vaccinate their livestock. It's simple on theory. What is behind all of that, the logistics that we need to implement, etc., the creative ways that we need to bring that awareness to farmers that we're seeing on our questionnaires. Farmers simply don't know about rabies. They don't know that bats give rabies on these areas. It's not only rabies, it's that they are not aware of the, of the threat. Our um, upcoming results are showing that when they do, when they fear rabies, farmers that are poor, that have, that this, these are the poorest areas of Peru, they still vaccinate the animals against rabies. The fear is a very powerful 
very, very powerful in our data. We're showing that we are analysis is very powerful to make farmers decide that the livestock is more important than for, for their vaccinate or um, the trust on authorities is also important for them to report. So if we can improve both the trust on authorities um, and tell authorities where you are, like Daniel was saying, where you are missing cases, for example, based on our combination of data, of science uh, approaches, we will we can tell them there is a lot of farmers reporting here, yet you have no official cases under reporting. Do an educational campaign here, put the radios on on that is something that they could do, and we have been discussing with them radios campaigns, which is have been tried a couple of times in Africa, um, could make a big difference here of awareness. Then farmers are aware that doesn't mean that they will vaccinate the livestock. We see that on our data. Awareness and knowledge is not enough. When they actually fear rabies because they have seen it on their communities, then that's the extra step for them to vaccinate. If we could find a way with authorities and vaccination manufacturers, etc., to shift that into, we know or we can give you the risk that this is coming to you. With that risk, uh, that uncertainty on our predictions, it's on your side to see if that risk is big enough for you to actually vaccinate your animals. This is what the authorities are trying to do. They go to areas where rabies is not there, they try to vaccinate animals, but farmers don't respond to that because they don't see the risk. Tackling that problem, I think, will for sure prevent death of livestock until we find other ways, like Daniel was explaining, like vaccination on bats, to completely prevent the problem. I think that's a second step. No other animal is probably more associated with cross-species transmission of viruses and viral emergence than bats. Bats have been implicated in the spread of many other viral pathogens, excluding rabies, to humans and our livestock, such as the filoviruses, Marburg virus, and probably Ebola virus, the paramyxoviruses, Nipah virus and Hendra virus, and of course, SARS coronavirus. Could the study of rabies virus in bats be used as a tractable model system to study how and why viruses jump from one species to another? I would say that the studies that we're doing in vampire bats are addressing some fundamental problems of how we do disease control in free-ranging wildlife. Um, it, we're seeing a lot of similar things to what has been seen in uh, the tuberculosis problem in badgers in the UK, where um, the, the, the changes that happen in badger social behavior and dispersal as a result of culling can really influence the, both the transmission dynamics of bovine tuberculosis within badgers and the risk to livestock. So I think we're, we're accumulating a body of evidence which hopefully will eventually give us some understanding of what are the ways that we should go about controlling infectious diseases in livestock, uh, and livestock and wildlife together in these coupled systems. Um, more generally than that, I mean, rabies has long served as a really nice model system for both uh, developing methodologies and for testing some core principles. So um, rabies has been one of the best studied wildlife diseases in terms of landscape epidemiology, um, how we can use genetic data to understand patterns of viral spread across the landscape. And that really f arises because rabies is um, such a problem for public health and animal health in so many places. So that means that there are surveillance systems out there that um, will detect cases and give you really powerful data sets that allow you to explore different questions. Uh, one of the first questions that I addressed using these types of, kind of publicly collected data sets was um, how is rabies transmitted in, at the community level within bats? Um, so 
as I mentioned earlier, the really peculiar thing about rabies is that each bat species has its own virus. And by extension, that means that if you sequence the virus in any particular bat species, you can have a pretty good idea where what other bat species infected it. So most of the time, it's the same bat species. But we can also detect instances of cross-species transmission at the individual level, which is a really powerful thing to be able to observe because it means that we can then start to study what are the ecological or evolutionary factors that contribute to patterns of cross-species transmission. Uh, and so one of my first papers showed that the genetic relatedness of the bat species is one of the best predictors of how often you have cross-species transmission between bats, not only at the ecological timescale of like, this bat infected the other one, but also the viruses that end up establishing and forming their own evolutionary lineages tend to occur when viruses are, trans are transmitted between closely related bat species. So I think rabies is a nice system in that there are a lot of applied aspects to it, like what we're exploring in Peru with the vampire bat rabies, but then it also forms a really nice model system for asking core questions about viral ecology and evolution. Rabies remains a significant global health problem despite a safe and effective vaccine. This is in part due to the complex nature of its geographic spread and ecology and our limited understanding of it. Here, Daniel and Julio have given us a flavour of just how complicated rabies can be. Through the close study of rabies virus in vampire bats in Peru, the Stryker Lab provides the world with a fascinating and ever clearer picture of rabies transmission, epidemiology and evolution, all with a very tangible real-world benefit that could help save the lives of thousands of individuals across Latin America. We'll have to wait and see how Peru deals with the impending wave of rabies that is crashing through the Andes heading towards the Pacific Ocean. Daniel and Julio wish to extend their thanks to those not mentioned directly in this podcast, unfortunately due to time constraints. They mention their collaborators, especially those in Peru, local governments who helped facilitate their work, as well as colleagues in Latin America and those back here in Glasgow who helped carry out the research and who inspired them to do such important science. And of course, to those who helped mentor them throughout their training. You've been listening to Contagious Thinking, the podcast from the CVR. We want to thank Daniel and Julio for giving us their time to tell you about their research here in Glasgow. We hope you've enjoyed it. I know we have. I've been Josie. See you next time.